It is a delightful privilege, isn't it, to be able to come together this evening. We're certainly thankful for the blessing of God. We just sang about how great things He has done. And certainly He's been so good to so many of us tonight. We are certainly reminded of those whose circumstances are much different. Those who are struggling so with health and other things in life. We always pray that their burdens might be lifted and that things may soon be far better with them in all those avenues that perhaps they are at the moment. Tonight I have a question that I'd like for each of us to consider, to ask you, where is God today? In fact, you may notice this is part one of what I'm envisioning to be a two-part series, and so we'll have to look forward to next Sunday night to complete it. But where is God today? This next slide is basically a very brief introductory one. It is this subject, in light of what we're about to discuss, that often is the central and first argument that is used by many to cast a cloud of doubt to you and I. You people who are Christians, where is your God when these various things happen? We're about to give some more detail to that in just a moment. But not only is it true that that's the case as well, it's also fair to say that this very matter is a basic philosophy as well. There is something that must be an understood part of life, or you and I shall never have the peace that we need to have. And we'll never have the internal safety, security, and fortitude that God would wish us to know. It is in light of that. The question again is the same. Where is God today? The opening part of this next slide will hopefully add a few details to that subject. Quite frankly, there are many sincere people who ask that question. They honestly would wish to know something different than what they currently do know, and they want to find those avenues in life that they hear others talk about. I'd like to know the peace that you seem to know, and I'd like to have the confidence and assurance. Where is this God you're talking about? But in addition, might I say that not all who ask that are sincere, and not all who ask that are rather earnest either. There are those who are highly frustrated, and there are those who quite frankly ask it because they are beside themselves in disbelief. Where was God on September the 11th, 2001? We all know what's happened that day. It is a day that likely will now live in infamy. We understood well what happened. Where was He when He allowed those planes to crash into the World Trade Center towers? Why didn't He stop it? Where was He when that tsunami killed in excess of 150,000 people in December of 2005? Why didn't He stop it? If there is this God who's loving and caring and compassionate as you say He is, why did He allow that to happen? Where was God at that school shooting in Connecticut just a few years ago where 20 or so little kids, six years and under, lost their lives? Why didn't He jump in and do something to impede it, to prohibit it? Do you see the point of the question, where is God today? As I mentioned, there are those who would ask it in earnestness, and there are those like the ones I've just mentioned who ask it because they're frustrated you and I seem to make claims about there being this all-loving, all-powerful God, and yet He permits things like this to happen. You'll notice furthermore on that slide, throughout the ages, a number of supposed answers have been given. A number of supposed considerations have been the lot. 
I would ask tonight that our interest is not what speculation some might suppose, and it isn't the affirmed answers that some may suggest. You hold in your, in your lap the book to which I would invite us to turn. It's the one we're always going to go to. What about the book of Habakkuk? If you would be turning to that book near the end of the Old Testament, the little three-chapter book of Habakkuk, in that little book, you and I will find some great truths that will help us as we address this question before us this evening. As we get ready to look at Habakkuk, though, let me ask a few additional biblical questions. Where was God when the flood came in Noah's day? Where was God when the children of Israel were allowed to languish in Egyptian captivity for such a long time? Over 215 years, where was He then? Where was God when He allowed the Babylonians to overwhelm the children of Israel in 70 years they spent in captivity? Where was God in the spring of A.D. 30 when He watched His own Son be nailed to a cross? Why didn't He stop that? Well, if you and I could answer questions perhaps along that line and at least give some consideration to it, perhaps we'll be well positioned and well set to reflect on the book of Habakkuk. Where is God today? As we close that slide and turn to the next one, why don't we do that by casting a bit of a consideration on the setting of this book? What is it about this little book and the circumstances that surround it and those features that in fact are embedded within it that can even be of some assistance to us as we think about this circumstance today. Where is God today? The little book of Habakkuk was written in about 604 B.C. That is to say, it was written only about 17 years prior to the occurrence of the Babylonian captivity. Now, I'll have more to say about that in just a minute, but at least it would be some fair point to notice, as I would ask you to notice at the top. The prophet Habakkuk labored at a time that was quite frankly a sorry time. Oh, it's true the people had a degree of prosperity and they had at least some element of consideration relative to well-being physically. But spiritually, it was just awful. The people had departed from God. It was such that, as you can see on the slide, it was a time that the children of Israel, listen to me now, the people of God were known for violence. It's not just that the world was experiencing this. The people of Judah, violence was rampant. Iniquity was sky high. In addition to that, there was a fair amount of strife. There was an internal discord and difficulty. In the final notice, injustice seemed, seemingly was the order of the day. In light of all of that, it might be fair to say that the first of the Babylonian deportations had just occurred about one year earlier. The first bunch of Israel had been taken off to Babylon. There were two more yet to come. And God commissioned Habakkuk to preach to the people to settle in their minds some truths that would encourage them in these times of trouble. In essence, although society was so bad, and although God's people were suffering so at the hands of the Babylonians, there were some things they needed to know. 
some internal matters that were so important to understand. For that reason, look at what's next. The chapter, in fact, the book begins like this. Habakkuk had already been told by God, Look, my people are so wicked, and they have turned their back upon me in rebellion, and I am going to send them into Babylonian captivity. And there they're going to stay for some amount of time. Habakkuk's reply perhaps was similar to what you and I can easily imagine. Habakkuk said, God, how can you let this happen? Now please understand, it's not as if Habakkuk was a faithless man. He was a noble prophet, but he was a bit confused. God, as bad as your people are, aren't the Babylonians worse? How can you let them overwhelm your people? It's easy to see the point, isn't it? As bad as the children of Israel were, the Babylonians still were far worse. And yet Habakkuk asked God that question. How can you allow these wicked people, these heathens, to overwhelm and conquer your own people? You'll notice in the first few verses of the book of Habakkuk, that question is asked by Habakkuk. And in the latter part of chapter 1, God gives His answer. And He gives an answer that's profound, and He gives an answer that's direct. And if I may paraphrase it, it goes like this. It's true, Habakkuk, that those Babylonians are wicked. And it's also true my people are wicked. I'm going to allow the Babylonians to carefully take my people to captivity because I want them to remove the harshness. And I want my people to learn to trust in me and I want them to realize that they need me. And therefore, I'm going to allow this to happen. But you rest assured, Habakkuk, I'll punish those Babylonians in due time. I know very well what kind of people they are. And, and, I will overwhelm them and they will be brought before my judgment for their iniquity. That's a, that's a powerful answer, isn't it? It is in that light. You may notice about the middle of that slide. The certainty that was infused in God's statement. And now let me invite you to notice one of the key verses in the whole book of Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 4. In fact, it is this verse that's quoted three times in the New Testament. Three times. The just shall live by faith. Habakkuk, you be faithful. You, in fact, do that which is my command to you, and you be a faithful and true prophet in every regard of commissioning I've given you. And the just shall live by faith. Isn't it true and isn't it interesting that, again, that's quoted several times in the New Testament as the basis for your life today and mine. The just shall live by faith. And that faithfulness, as embodied in the teaching of the book of Habakkuk, is an issue and a matter of great import. And you'll note this, it does bring us to the humility that ultimately characterized Habakkuk's response. Remember, he had started the book by asking a question, how can you allow this to happen, God? But in the final analysis, after hearing God's reply and after appreciating the message of God, Habakkuk, in fact, in chapter 3, verses 1 and following, powerfully noted that it was his lot to be faithful. Could I invite you to notice just a couple of the statements in chapter 3, and then we'll jump into the remainder of our lesson. Again, in chapter number 3, verse number 2, 
Oh, Lord, I have heard thy speech. Habakkuk now testifies, God, I've heard what you had to say. And oh, how sweet your answer is. But notice what else is true. I was afraid. Oh, Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years made known in wrath, remember mercy. It was now the petition of Habakkuk, God, revive your work. Your people need to be stirred up. And it was Habakkuk's understanding now that God was going to use the Babylonians to help stir up his own people. It's a true sometimes, isn't it, that God can use conflicting circumstances to stir us up and to bring us to a closer fidelity to God. There are times it's easy to trust in ourselves And even Paul, remember, was told, I will not take that thorn in the flesh away because in that thorn, you're always in a position to remember that you need to lean on me. You need my strength and my assurance and my confidence and my fidelity. Today, isn't it still true then? Where is God today? As you and I close that slide, May I invite you to note now the lesson text of chapter 2, verse 20, the last verse of Habakkuk chapter 2. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. A number of truths are evident. A number of truths are worthy of serious reflection. We shall, of course, give them consideration and use them as we come to that lesson next Sunday night. Where is God today? Let me give you God's answer. The answer of the Bible. God is where He has always been. God is where He has always been. When those flood waters came in the days of Noah, and untold thousands perished in those flood waters, God was exactly where He still is now. In that spring of A.D. 30, when the Master was crucified on that tree outside Jerusalem, God was exactly where He still is now. In the aftermath of September the 11th, 2001, God is exactly then where He still is. This was a lesson that the people of Habakkuk's day needed to know, and it's a lesson, may I suggest, can be of great benefit to us. Where is God today? He is where He has always been. He reigns majestically on the throne in heaven. Let's read that verse again. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. The message of that little verse is this. You need to be quiet. You need to hush and let God speak to you. He is faithful and He is where He has always been. And we must never allow the evil attributes and the evil things that men may choose to do bring doubt or despair or questioning to us. God wasn't behind those planes crashing into the World Trade Centers. That was evil. Some evil person concocted a scheme whereby that came to pass. Does God permit evil to occur on His earth? Has He allowed it throughout the ages and time? The same kind of questions, you see, that we could ask relative to these matters today could have been asked about Noah's day. Why didn't God stop the flood? Why did He ever allow that to happen? You and I know that what God does is always right. It's always right. No wonder then we ought to note this. The book of Judges 
interestingly enough, offers us a number of additional thoughts about this matter. Hold your finger here to Habakkuk. Let's go back to Judges chapter 6 for just a moment. In the sixth chapter of Judges, we encounter another element in Israelite history. But that element is certainly a very challenging one. I'll not read certainly the whole chapter, but let me begin in verse number 1. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. Let's stop right there. The children of Israel had chosen to do what was evil. They had chosen to conduct themselves in a way that was not consistent with the revelation they'd been given, which was the law of Moses at that time. They had chosen to be disobedient. Did you note the consequences? It says, And the Lord delivered them. God permitted these Midianites to conquer, to overwhelm, to punish them. Now, no doubt, many of those Israelites, when that happened, they were in a state of despair, and they were wondering, why did God let this happen? If He loves us, how could He have permitted it? Let's read on. Verse 2, And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. And because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them. And they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till thou come unto Gaza and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor ass." The picture that you and I rather quickly glean is a very strange and dark one. You could picture it like this. The children of Israel were such that these Amalekites and these other enemies, they would permit the Israelites to till the ground, plant the crops, work throughout the growing season until the harvest was ready, and then these enemies would come down out of the hills and come down over the valleys, and they'd overwhelm the Israelites and chase them away. And then they'd reap the crops. Israel did all the work, and the Amalekites got to reap the benefits. And did you notice where the Israelites had to go and live? They had to go up into the mountains and live in caves and dens. May we never forget, God let that happen because the people had become wicked. They had chosen to be disobedient. Many times in the human family's lot, we understand that there are those who choose to do evil, and God will permit that to occur. But often the faithful, those like you and me, may suffer because of the evil choices of those evil people. We may, in fact, be those who often are led to inconvenience. And we may be those who are led to physical harm or abuse. We know that there are many in our world today who choose to do what's evil, they abuse children or abuse people. God's not behind this. It is not the fact that God made that person that way. God made nobody, may I repeat, nobody as a sinner. God makes people pure and holy and upright. He instills a perfect spirit within us. It is our evil choices. It isn't God's fault when those kind of things happen. The children of Israel found themselves in this predicament here. Let's continue reading. Verse number 5, For they came up with their cattle and their tents, 
and they came as grasshoppers for multitude, for both they and their camels were without number. And they entered into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. Finally, they came to their senses, and they understood that their position was because of what they'd done. If you jump down a little further in the chapter, you'll notice that Gideon was the very person who now God commissions to be the deliverer of Israel from these Midianites. You'll notice about the middle point of that slide, this is certainly by no means the only time we appreciate these kind of events in the lives of those people that would love the Lord. Do you and I sometimes suffer at the hands of the evil choices that other people make? Sure we do. No doubt about it. May I say, that does not change the fact that God is still in His holy temple, and He still reigns in supreme majesty, and He still reigns in absolute omnipotence from that location. You'll notice this also on the slide. It was in the midst of those things that Habakkuk made this dramatic statement. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. You and I need to be such humble people in that we appreciate that God is so marvelous and so great and His choices as He resides on that throne in heaven sometimes are far beyond our capacity and our capability. It's then we must trust Him. It's then we must have the fullest of confidence that He is the God that He says He is and that His Word with all the evidence it presents is exactly that which you and I can fully believe in. The Lord is in His holy temple. Don't you find it interesting in the midst of that discussion of this destruction that was going to come on the Babylonians, it was that dramatic statement that occurs. In the midst of that judgment from God, God indeed is still in His holy temple. One last thing on that slide. Throughout the Word of God, how often is it that that kind of situation is what is so vital? How often was Paul in prison and never once did we hear him say, God, if you're there, why don't you get me out of here? It was Paul who seemingly understood an attribute of appreciation that God is in His holy temple. And he was going to do that which was right in his life here on earth so that he could one day be there with Him. The Lord is in His holy temple. It's at that point I would ask you to turn back to Habakkuk. I suppose for some the key verses in the book are yet to come. I purposely withheld the latter observation until now. Would you please note with me Habakkuk chapter 3. I noticed that earlier we had made some comment again about Habakkuk's plea for God to revive his work and what a lovely sentiment and what an overwhelming thought. But yet verses 17 to 19 in many people's mind would be the high water mark of the book of Habakkuk. I'd like to read it. Although the fig tree shall not blossom Neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold. There shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. 
I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and He will make my feet like hinds' feet, and He will make me to walk upon mine high places. Now, pausing at that point, did you notice the overwhelming sense of confidence and assurance? Habakkuk had started the book with a bit of question in his mind. God, how could you let the Babylonians do this? And yet, after hearing God's answer, after appreciating the sentiment that God was in His holy temple, the book closes. If I may paraphrase some of the thoughts. If there's no food in the cupboard, if the bank account's empty, if the car won't start and all the cattle have died, if I've lost my job and have nowhere to turn, I'm still going to trust in the God of my salvation no matter what. And I know He'll make my feet like hinds' feet. I shall emerge victorious, and I shall be the one that will appreciate His sins and His fidelity in all matters. The book of Habakkuk is such a stirring book. It's a book of encouragement. It's a book, though it does occur in the Old Testament, that is cemented on the reality of the fact there is a God in heaven. May you and I never doubt that He's there. I know many today would offer the observation, well, again, how do you know He's there? There's not a doubt in any of our minds. His book testifies of it. His creation testifies of it. And in the marvelous wonder of the way in which He has acted in such great love to the human family. Jesus really did live on this earth. He really did. Secular history accords the fact that He did and that He died. He was the Son of God. May you and I always trust in Him, absolutely. Let's close our lesson in like this tonight. Where is God today? He is enshrined and enthroned where He's always been. He sits on the throne in heaven. And the Bible through 66 books shouts so loudly that He's there. May I say, borrowing the wording of Psalm 11 verses 3 and 4, the Lord is in His holy temple. That's the same sentiment we've just noted in our study tonight. I hope as we reflect on Habakkuk that we'll be charged to proceed into this week more confident than ever, more assured than ever that God is faithful and that He's reigning in heaven and that He's always going to do what's right. As we offer the invitation at this moment, it could be that there's someone who, though a faithful Christian at one time, You've allowed doubts to creep into your heart. Perhaps statements that others have made have begun to work a little bit of an essence in your being. You have begun to have essences of question. Do we really know? May I say the infidels and the agnostics and the others who are atheists, they may try to call into our heart a questioning concerning God, but the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. It's our humble plea tonight that we may simply bow in submission to His will, always doing what He teaches and what He commands, knowing that that not only will glorify Him, but it's always best for us. A song of encouragement has been selected. We'd be delighted this very night to assist in any way that we can. If we could do that at this moment, to help you re reinvigorate your life in fidelity and truthfulness, why don't you come? and do it at once. All together we stand and sing.